Hello, everyone, and welcome to A Cast of Kings, an unofficial podcast about the HBO original series Game of Thrones. I'm David Chen, and I haven't read most of the books in George R. R. Martin's A Song of Ice and Fire. I'm Joanna Robinson, and I've read every book in George R. R. Martin's A Song of Ice and Fire. And welcome to the show, everyone. What we do here on this podcast is we talk about uh, every episode of Game of Thrones in depth. We recap each episode, but we don't spoil anything from future week's episodes of Game of Thrones. And that includes anything on the next time on preview that HBO gives you. That includes anything from the books. So it's a spoiler-free zone for anyone who wants to listen. You can find more of our episodes at GameOfThronesPodcast.com. You can also email us at acastofkings at gmail.com. Also find us on Facebook and Twitter at acastofkings. So, John Robinson, before we get into today's podcast, we like to do some follow-up from last week. We like to do some acknowledgments. We like to do some thank yous. And one person I want to thank is the person who wrote the song that you just heard as the intro for this week's episode. Uh, last week, we put the call out for people to email us songs uh, that they'd be okay with us using as part of the podcast. And a bunch of you responded, and we're extremely grateful to that. Uh, but there is one song that we really enjoyed, and that was Blade Gear's song called You Make Brooding Look Good. <laughs> and that's the song that you just heard, uh, and you will hear the entire thing at the end of this episode. Uh, but yeah, you can find more of his work at Instagram.com slash Blade Gear. That's B-L-A-D-E-G-E-E-R. The Blade Gear, which is actually apparently his actual name. I, I don't actually believe Blade Gear is a real name. Um, it's kind of like Fox Mulder. You know, it's like, is that actually a thing? Um, <laughs> but uh, apparently it's real, and we're really grateful uh, that uh, he wrote and performed that song for us. Um, I think we have some exciting musical things in the future as well, right, Joanna? But we're not gonna we're not gonna say exactly what. But look forward to more fun music stuff coming up, right? Yeah, let's not overpromise and deliver. Let's just delight people. Things happen. So yeah, thank you guys so much for all the music you sent in. It was so sweet. All right, Joanna. A couple of the things to cover before we get to the episode. Uh, one of them is I wanted to give a shout out to uh, the gentleman who designed the art for the show this uh, season, right? We did a redesign of our logo. Uh, it's, all, it's all red and gold, and it's very striking, and uh, we've gotten a lot of compliments on it. Uh, and I wanted to just give a shout-out to wikirascals.com, wikirascals.com, W-I-K-I-rascals.com, um, who has designed artwork for many of our shows, right, Joanna? Mm-hmm. Um, he's, he did our Decoding Westworld, our Peaks TV podcast uh, for Twin Peaks, which is currently running right now, uh, and uh, several. Uh, he did Storm of Spoilers as well, right? So, Gen Pop, yeah, Gen Pop, R.I.P. A <laughs> lot of shows. Very talented guy. Uh, his, yeah. his real name is Gustavo, uh, and just wanted to acknowledge him and thank him for all of his hard work over the years, and especially 
uh, this season. So, and he has his own uh, Game of Thrones podcast this season. Oh, that's right. So, yeah, yeah. so you might want to check it out. He found, see, he found the he he took the first step you have to take when you're going to make a pop culture podcast, which is that he found a Dave to podcast with. Right. That's always been the secret to my success. Find a Dave. And um, so he's got a Dave. So it's Gustavo and Dave. And uh, yeah, I should go go check their podcast. The, the, out. the podcast is called Valar Podharis. Yeah, Valar which is great. Podharis, <laughs> all men must pod at valarpodharis.com. Yeah. Uh, so great title as well. Um, it's a great it's a great show too yeah. yeah so wanted to give uh gustavo a shout out finally we've got a bunch of emails from people a lot of tweets from people asking how how can you find old episodes of this podcast uh i am working on a solution to get all the old podcasts up on the feed in the meantime if you go to game of thrones you can page through the older episodes and find uh the the older podcast that way it's not ideal but it's one way you can listen to it right now is go to GameOfThronesPodcast.com, go like scroll all the way down, page back, and you can find the older episodes. Um, but you know, working on a way to get the uh, the older episodes up on the feed so you can just subscribe to them. Uh, but that is probably a post season project. But uh, I, I, it's within it's within my grasp, Joanna. I feel I can see it. <laughs> I feel like it? it's almost. I, I can taste it. Like a uh, horde of Dothraki on the horizon. That's right. That's right. That's right. So mm. right. anyway, uh, so I wanted to just let people know, GameOfThronesPodcast.com. Now, we got a bunch of emails this week as well to castofkings at gmail.com. Uh, and let's talk about one of them. This one comes in from Julia, who writes in from Chicago. Julia writes in, <clears throat> I wanted to know your opinion on Cersei as a villain. This topic came up during our viewing party this past week when we were discussing who is the worst villain on Game of Thrones. I said Cersei, hands down. My main argument for this is that all the other villains have redeemed themselves in some way, whereas Cersei hasn't. You discussed the redemption of Jaime in the last episode of the podcast, and you previously have discussed the Mountain's evolution and Theon slash Reek's changes. These villains, while flawed, to put it nicely, have acted outside of themselves and to great risk and sacrifice. Those acts make them more dimensional and thus not as bad as Cersei. My friends push back saying she has the love of her children as her motivation, but that doesn't ring as true because she's still insular in her sacrifice, yada, yada, yada. Ultimately, my friends concluded, as have many, a, a few others on the internet, that Cersei is that much more vile because she's a female, and that, she, that she's never given any redeeming qualities or hers aren't as valid because she's a female. My question is, do you agree? And if so, is this an oversight and our inherent sexism prevents us from seeing her as complex and perhaps forgivable character? Or is this intentional by the writers, Martin or Benioff and Weiss, to shed light on the sexism? Uh, or is she really just the worst? I was hoping you'd help me think about this. To be honest, I think my friends are heartless and have forgotten about all the unforgivable things she's done. But maybe <laughs> I am still bitter about Lady. Either way, I'd love to hear what you think. Love the show. Thank you for the work you put into my entertainment. That's from Julia from Chicago who writes into a cast of kings. Gmail.com. What do you think, Joanna? Uh, who's the worst villain and is Cersei that person? A uh, worst living villain on the show is probably right. Cersei, right? Um, well, first thing, uh, two things really quickly. One, Julia said, I think she was talking. She said something about like the evolution of the mountain. I believe she meant the hound, which is a mistake I always make myself. Oh, and good, then good call out. the other thing is, I too am still bitter about Lady the Dire Wolf uh, that Cersei basically had killed. So um, I, I feel Julia on that. Um, in terms of sexism or, or how we approach Cersei, it's funny because the depiction of Cersei in the show is actually much more sympathetic 
than it was in the book. So she's given a lot more, like there's that whole backstory where she lost a, a baby that she had with Robert, or she talks about how much in the show in season one, she talks about how she loved Robert so much, um, sort of until she realized he would never not love Liana and then, or never, not, never love her only love Liana. And then she got sort of embittered about it. And, um, and a number of other things they gave some of her, uh, bad actions to Joffrey in the show. So basically they sort of like dimensional, the show sort of dimensionalized and softened Cer- Cersei to a certain degree, which I know some book readers didn't like. I do like, cause I'm always for sort of complicating these things and, and challenging people to, um, sympathize with or or at least find some common ground with, uh, someone who is so villainous. And so when we have Cersei's walk of shame, Right. In season five, I think that's just one of the most brilliant things in the books and in the show is, you know, here's this person that you've come, you've grown accustomed to hating. And then you, you're just sort of in this very vulnerable place with her. And and I think that's a really interesting storytelling. And then, you know, to have her harden even further, you know, and probably go even or definitely go even more villainous after her walk. But you have a hard time fully blaming her given some of the things that have happened to her. Um, I just – I find her a very compelling character and, and that's enhanced by the fact that Lena Headey sort of betrays her uh, – portrays her. I don't know about sexism. I think s- sexism or at least um, – I, I know that there are some people who are just like – and I don't think Julia is this person. But there are some people who are just like Cersei's evil end of sentence and um, – Maybe some sexism comes into play in that in that regard. But um, and then the last thing I'll say before I'm interested to hear your your response is in, uh, you know, I've been thinking a lot recently about George R. R. Martin's original outline for the series, which sort of um, leaked online a couple years ago. No spoilers uh, for this because this particular aspect is long past. But originally it was supposed to be Jamie who was sort of the main villain of the piece. And he like after Joffrey died, Jamie kills everyone in his way to the throne and Jamie sits on the throne. Mm. That seems to be the role that's been given to Cersei. And so um, I I think that's interesting. Um, <clears throat> that that Cersei has taken on that position, at least on the show. And um yeah. So curious about your thoughts. <clears throat> I think the call out of the the shame walk is a great one. Uh, and I think that in the past, she definitely has been an extremely sympathetic character. I mean, season one, you know, all the conversations she had with Robert and being trapped in that loveless marriage. Uh, I, I, she was extremely sympathetic. And when she took her revenge on, on all the people around her, uh, even though she's super evil, and, I mean, Joffrey was a true villain back then, but... Uh, I really felt for her. I felt like a lot of her actions were extremely understandable. So I, I kind of disagree with the premise that that she has, like, between all all the things we've just talked about, season one stuff, walk of shame, like, all that stuff, I think there's been a lot to portray her as sympathetic in the show. So I, I think she is a complex villain, and I don't think she is uh, the, the worst, like, villain of the whole thing. I mean, I, I think, like... Probably the worst villain is is uh, Ramsey Bolton because he feels pretty one dimensional, right? Mm. Like I didn't, I didn't feel. Like... I guess it depends how you define worst. Right, right. Um, Do you mean like most villainous or well, in, in every in every way most villainous poorly, and also poorly you know, developed? Poorly developed, I think. Uh, yeah, th- I thought the performance was great. Yeah, but not it, a knock on the performance. Yeah, not a knock on um, the performance, but it's just like 
it, it was a it, he's like a comic book villain. You know, he's so evil. He's he's so yeah. evil. You know, even Joffrey had his youth as an ex- excuse for his actions. Uh, Ramsay is just a psychopath. You know, and so that's probably the the villain that I think is worst, both in terms of morally and in terms of like how uh, they're portrayed in the show. Someone in the someone in the chat room just brought up the Night King as sort of like the personification of evil, and um, you know they they didn't necessarily say personification. I did, but I just I I even have the word trouble with the word personification because the Night King is just not character <laughs> you know the night king is a force and and that's the the night king is the reason why i'm very grateful for a character like cersei because i find her villainy so much more compelling than a rando can't stop won't stop killing machine made of ice from the north you know what i mean like i i they've used the night king so sparingly as just a symbol for encroaching danger and evil I don't know how George R. R. Martin is going to handle the White Walkers, the others from the North. I don't know if he tends, if he wants to make like them any more multidimensional than they are in the show. But in the show, despite the fact that the Night King was once a human was turned into a monster by the Children of the Forest, like he is not a character with any kind of dimensionality. And um, I find. You know, we'll talk about this a little more in this episode, but I find conflicts between, I don't know, characters that you can both see their point of view um, that, you know, that's rare these days with Cersei. But, uh, you know, I just I find a character like Cersei so much more interesting Agreed. than something like Agreed. the Night King. We, we, we're we both in complete agreement, um, yep. which is rare. But, yes, I, I agree with everything <laughs> it you're It will s- never happen again. Yeah, yeah. So we, Cersei's a great villain, I think. Um, yeah. Well played, well written. Uh, I'm a big fan of Cersei as a villain. All right, uh, let's. Oh, actually, you know, on, on the note of Cersei, John, I, I've been meaning to ask you this. I think someone brought this up either via email or via Twitter or something. But some people have alluded to the prophecy uh, that Cersei received. I think it was at the beginning of season. I want to say five. Yep. Five. Right. Uh, where uh, Maggie the Frog, the fortune teller, gives her some some fortunes right she says um you'll never wed the prince you'll wed the king you'll be queen for a time then comes another younger more beautiful to cast you down and take all you hold dear uh the king will have 20 children and you will have three gold will be their crowns gold their shrouds and then she also says well there's a piece in the books that did not make it into the show right uh, please excuse my high Valerian pronunciation, but it's Valencar, Valencar. Yeah, I've heard it both ways. Um, so we actually, I I think this this does is this technically a book spoiler? You know, it might be a book spoiler. So I mean, you- it's it's a book spoiler, but I I I will be the most surprised person on the planet if this ever makes it into the show. So mm. okay, well, you know. so if you don't want to hear a potential book spoiler, skip forward by like a couple minutes. Uh, but here we go. The witch also says to Cersei in the book, when your tears have drowned you, the Valencar shall wrap his hands around your pale white throat and choke the life from you. Uh, and apparently Valencar means little brother in Valerian, uh, mm-hmm. which theoretically is Tyrion, but uh, Jamie is her twin and he could also technically be a little brother, yeah, right? he came out after her. Right. Yep. So there's a lot of speculation that Jamie will be the one to actually kill Cersei. Yes. And what do you, what do you feel about that? Do you, do you, would that does that prospect excite you? Because it excites me. I'll be honest; like that would be pretty uh, pretty epic death for Cersei. 
Yeah, well, I guess the problem is that, you know, those of us who are book readers and book theorists have been sitting with this for like years and years and years, this expectation that either Tyrion or Jamie, but probably Jamie because that's more poetic, will kill Cersei. So I don't know if excited is the word because it's like it's so expected to me at this point. Mm. But uh, what I'm more excited about that I think the show has been hinting at um, between Braun in season five and Olena last week uh, is that it'll be something more like mutually assured destruction. Hmm. I feel like they will kill each other in the end. Wow. And that really interests me. Well, I mean, so. uh, Joanna, you're assuming that Jamie survives this week's episode. So let's not get ahead of ourselves. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, um, let's get to this episode. John Robinson cast of Kings for season seven of game of Thrones episode four, uh, the spoils of war. This one was written by Benioff and Weiss, and it was directed by Matt Shackman. Now, if you know that name, it's because that person has directed over 40 episodes of It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia. He's also directed some other television shows like Fargo. Uh, very talented guy, but I will confess, when I first saw uh, that Matt Shackman was directing some Game of Thrones, I thought to myself, oh, this must be one of those dialogue-heavy episodes. <laughs> Right. <laughs> I I think I speculated when the when the director list came out. I was like, maybe it'll be some sort of wacky hijinks at Old Town with Sam and right, the right. and the Maesters. Maybe <laughs> so, uh, maybe well, uh, you a know, bottle he, episode. He did direct a technically virtuosic uh, episode of It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia called Charlie Work, and uh, a huge fan of that episode. Very well executed. So yeah, but you're right. Maybe bottle episode. Maybe something like really like contained within like a few tiny locations. Mostly just dialogue. Some may, hopefully some comedy. Maybe we're looking at some comedy here. So you know, we'll see. We'll see. There there was some comedy in this episode, but yeah, indeed. Uh, well, in uh, towards the beginning of this episode, we see Cersei uh, meeting with Tycho from the Iron Bank. Um, and he is very impressed that she is ready to pay back her debt uh, so soon with all the money that they took from Highgarden. Uh, and he, Tycho says she's even more efficient than Tywin. Like, Tywin got stuff done. Cersei's getting stuff done even quicker. Um, and she, you know, in an early episode of this podcast, Joanna, I speculated that we would never see uh, that big floor mural ever again i was wrong <laughs> we saw it for another like 30 seconds this episode um but the production designers like do you know how long this took us yeah <laughs> <laughs> you're gonna put it in every shot you could put it in exactly it. exactly yeah and so uh she alludes to the fact that she might need some uh shoring up of her troops especially because uh you know as jamie said a couple episodes ago like uh, you control three. You, you have at most three of the seven kingdoms, um, but slowly, you know, they're starting to take some of them back. Things seem to be turning Cersei's way. They have all this gold. Everything seems going well for Cersei at this point, right? Um, but uh, you write here in the show notes: Kyburn has made overtures to the Golden Company, and uh, Tycho says the bank will likely back her in that venture. Can you say a little bit more about this? Yeah, the Golden Company are uh, is a group of mercenaries in Essos, and um, you know, like Davos. Uh, sorry, Dario Naharis belonged to a group of mercenaries in in Essos. So there are a bunch of them banging around, but the Golden Company specifically are made up mostly of exiled Westerosi 
uh, lords or, or, you know, fighters and their descendants. And so Jorah Mormont, for example, was a member of the Golden Company before he went into service with Daenerys. And, um, you know, they're excellent fighting men. They've never broken a, you know, a deal and stuff like that. But there still is like a, a little bit of a, uh, you know, a... It's it's slightly low declasse to hire mercenaries. In I think season three, uh, Davos suggests to Stannis that they hired the Golden Company, and Stannis is like, "Sell swords, never." <laughs> so um, you know the fact that Cersei is sort of importing um, mercenaries. Right. It shows, a, it shows she's a, on thin a, ice. Go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. A, yeah that. And also it kind of goes against her whole, like, I mean, even if they are exiled Westerosi Lords, it kind of goes against her. Like she's, she's, uh, she's outsourcing this job to, uh, to Essos. So, yeah. So who knows if, if she'll actually get that deal together, but that seems to be sort of her idea of how to get more bodies on her side since Daenerys, at least at the beginning of the season, definitely. Um, well, no, Tyrion says in this episode, Daenerys still outnumbers uh, the Lannister forces. Right. Um, and, and certainly after the barbecue of this week's episode, she does. Um, well, I, well, Joanna, I mean, I think that it's not a bad plan. And as long as nothing goes wrong with Cer- for Cersei from this point forward, that she'll be fine. She's right? going to win. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Like, and she's that in a precarious like... state, but like, get these Golden Company in there and shore and up the troops, and then she's fine. She's right? got it. As long as nothing goes wrong... <laughs> Then it's all set. You, know? you mean like as long as all of the loot that she just got from Highgarden makes it back in through the walls? As long as all the food they took from <laughs> you know Highgarden to protect their force, you know, to like yeah. reinforce the troops, you know, like as yeah. long as that all makes it back, she'll be fine. She'll, she's fine. Yeah, it's totally fine. It's totally fine. Yeah. It's I wanted a to mention- risky move, but yeah. Okay. <laughs> anyway, sorry. Go ahead. Uh, I wanted to mention one quick thing about Cersei. Um, I, I wrote this post, this kind of silly post last week about um, the length of her hair because this is something I think – I don't know if we've talked about it on this show, but people bring it up a lot when they get worried about timeline and time passing. And I just wanted to bring it up really quickly right now because it kind of relates to the email – Julia wrote us in terms of um, uh, producer Brian Cogman has said that Cersei's short hair is a choice. And that's why we see all these uh, handmaidens in King's Landing sort of copying her choice. And I wrote a little bit about how it relates to a desire she's expressed over and over again that she had been born, like she was, she had been born a man. She, she's jealous of her brother, Jamie, because he got all the advantages of being born a man. And she had to be stuck, like being sold off to Robert Baratheon and stuff like that. Right. And, um, and so this is sort of, you see it in how she's dressing. She's, she's dressing it. You know, Michelle Clapton, the costume designer has talked about how she's dressing her to look more like Tywin and like Jamie. And she's got her short hair. So this is part, you know, I, I don't know if it goes, you know, ties back into Julia's question about gender identity and Cersei, but some people in the chat room were, were asking about it. And that is definitely like a, something to consider when considering, uh, the current state of Cersei. <clears throat> so, and you know, what's interesting is in, in this episode, Tyke Anastara says, he, he doubles down on his thing that he said last week about like, oh, ho, ho, your father's daughter, you know, and this week he's basically like, you're better than Tywin because Tywin, you know, I was always Im- impressed with how Tywin sort of managed to deal with the debt situation in the Lannisters, but you out- outmatched him. And I think a lot of book readers are a little mad about that because the message of books four and five in the, in George R. R. Martin's series is like, you're watching Cersei unravel. And what's meant to be very clear is that she's not her father's daughter. Like, like she is, but she cannot be the next Tywin. 
Cersei is not suited for that role. And that's something we see in the books and the show has decided to go in another direction, which is fine. But I think some people are like mad because they feel like it's, it's, um, it's disrespectful to the Tywin Lannister legacy. Right. I don't mind it personally, but there yeah. You go. Um, and I guess as someone who hasn't read the books, uh, it is nice to see when someone's descendants are able to uh, surpass them. <laughs> you know, so <laughs> sure. I'm I'm on board with it. Uh, all right, let's move on to Winterfell. At Winterfell, Littlefinger meets with Bran and gives him the Valerian steel dagger. I, I, you know. I thought there, there was a bunch of cool moments that resulted from this action, Joanna, but it, it did seem odd to me that Littlefinger was giving... Like, what was the motivation there? It's you know, crazy. He probably had some some long game he was playing, right? Like, as, as Sansa indicates later on, like, um, uh, he wouldn't give this to you unless he uh, expected something in return or, you know, like, he, he's going to expect something in return. Uh, but anyway, gives him this and, sa- and says, like, hey... You know, a lot of the things that have happened, all the all the atrocities that have been following your family, a lot of it started with his dagger, uh, and he is very right about that, right? You, you, you know, uh, Bran was pushed out of a of a castle, and then uh, theoretically, like we don't know who gave the dagger to someone to kill Bran, but it was probably Littlefinger, right? Do you have a theory? Actually, on probably that? it's actually probably Joffrey. Ah, I see. Okay. Um, per, per the books. I mean, I guess that's a book spoiler, but I feel like at this point... Yeah, we're, we're like six years past that. Um, <laughs> yeah. But uh, right around the same... Like, like that action is what caused Catelyn Stark to go to King's Landing, right? And uh, it caused like a bunch of other misunderstandings to happen that led to Ned getting killed and then Rob going to war, right? It's um, hard to source these things because like what, what... You know, I think it's pretty rich of Littlefinger being like this dagger really started the the War of the Five Kings when like him poisoning John Aaron is really what started right, the War of exactly, the Five Kings. Exactly. I mean that's that's the original sin, right? So um yeah, but Littlefinger is playing his usual game um and he just didn't know that he was playing with uh Claire I don't know, clairvoyant, whatever you want to call Bran. Um, you know, he he's he's laying his bullshit on as thick as possible. It still does not make any sense to me that he would give Bran the dagger. I feel like the show wanted Bran to have the dagger so that Arya could have the dagger. Right. But I would much rather have had like Arya find the dagger among Littlefinger's possessions and take it or something like that. Well and, and just the way Little- that Bran hands it to Arya is so like a throwaway action. He's like, Oh, well, I can't use it. Here, here you go. You know? I'm gl- I'm I'm glad Arya has it. We've known for months that Arya would have it because Maisie Williams was wearing it on the cover of freaking Entertainment Weekly. Um, so, like, that was a weird little spoiler that they accidentally let out. Um, <laughs> but yeah, the, um, the transfer of dagger to Arya was not super well handled. I don't, I, I don't mind Arya having the dagger. I just think it's weird that Brandon's an intermediary. It makes no sense to me that Littlefinger, who is so good or has been so good at playing this game, would be like, "Hey, kid." <laughs> it's your uncle want, Peter. Want a dagger? Want, want to see a dead guy? Want to see a dead guy? Want to see this dagger that almost killed you? Like that's a crazy thing to do. Yeah. So it I is don't... by any standards an insane decision. <laughs> it makes no sense. So I think we just have to like forget about it because it makes no sense. But uh, well, so but, then yeah. you know, uh, first of all, I I sense that there was a callback to or not a callback, a reference to Blade Runner in the script. When uh, 
Oh yeah, you've you've seen things I can't imagine. Yeah, or something like you've like seen that. things yeah. like men wouldn't yeah. believe, right? Which is like yeah. uh, a reference to Rutger Hauer's speech at the end. Tears in the of, rain. Uh, yeah, tears in the rain monologue, right? Where he yeah. says, uh, "I've seen things <laughs> you people wouldn't believe," right? So uh, that's the first of several performances I'm going to give you today, Joanna. Oh, uh, I cannot wait. So. Yeah, so I, I thought it was a reference to the Tears in the Rain speech, but, you know, uh, who That's, knows? I mean, it rang that way to me as well. Yeah, yeah. So uh, I don't know if also... it's intentional or just sort of like like one of those phrases that just creeps into your writing. I right. mean, I, I could see myself doing that. I right, don't know. right. So uh, anyway, he mentioned something about chaos and then Bran, like I love the cl- just close up on Bran's face and he looks straight at him and he says, chaos is a ladder, right? Now, for those who don't remember, this is a, a reference to... A Littlefinger speech from, uh, I want to say, season three, right? Yep. Uh, and I'm, I'm going to now perform this monologue for you. <gasps> he says, and I'm not going to do the accent, though. Damn uh, it. Chaos is the pit. Chaos is a ladder. Many who try to climb it fail and never get to try again. The fall breaks them. And some are given a chance to climb. They refuse they cling to the realm or the gods or love. Illusions. Only the latter is real. The climb is all there is. Oh, my. <laughs> I hope you hear that. That's amazing. Uh, reference, uh, it's a reference to Littlefinger, like, giving that speech about how chaos, like, allows people to rise above uh, their current station in life. And uh, I, I thought it was, like, an, an opaque, like, neither of us are huge fans of that speech when he first gave it in season three. But uh, over time, as the years have gone on, it is a speech that I think about a lot uh, and, and think about how, yeah, often chaos facilitates people to, to rise uh, when it is, you know, their turn uh, in a way that peace does not, right? Well, it's funny because it's um, – I didn't I, – I, I believe you that I didn't like the speech at the time. Like we can check the transcript, but I definitely believe you. But uh, we have since – that is actually plays at the beginning of every single episode of Storm of Spoilers, that speech. Um, like th- so I'm – you know how you're just like – I have that speech memorized just because I hear it every single time I listen to an episode of that podcast. And what's funny is, uh, you know, a lot of people who um, – aren't close watchers of the show, they were really confused by the chaos is a ladder line um, because um, it's just not one that I think uh, people quote all the time. And so mm, they didn't really right. understand why Littlefinger was freaking out at what Bran said. Well, it, they're was like, in, it was in the ads for uh, all, like a lot of season three episodes, I believe. So I, yeah, but just some people are more casual watchers. Yeah, than or that. They, or they, so, just, they just started recently or something. Yeah. Yeah. And so, um, I got like literally hundreds of tweets from Storm of Spoilers listeners, A, freaking out because like they're so familiar with that line and B, talking about how they had to explain to their significant other what it meant. And they're like, oh, you should listen to this podcast because you would know. Um, so it's just it was a really funny uh, that that was the, the callback that they chose. But it's a really it's a really good callback because before he gives that whole chaos isn't a pit, chaos is a ladder speech to Varys. If you watch that whole extended scene um that is Littlefinger actually kind of uncharacteristically being his most confessional Mm. he's kind of bragging to Varys he brags to Varys about handing Roz over to Joffrey which is 
a repulsive thing that he did. He brags about blocking uh, Varys' uh, plans to marry Sansa to Loras Tyrell, which is something Varys was doing kind of in a protective way for Sansa, and Littlefinger blocked that. And he kind of brags about the fact that he wouldn't be stuck with Lysa Aaron for long, so basically kind of implying that he would kill her. So I feel like when Littlefinger hears that, chaos is a ladder he has that freaked out moment of like oh shit this kid is quoting back to me something i said in a private conversation that means Mm. if he can see that he can see anything but also oh shit what else did i say in that conversation that this kid might now know see i I know you keep saying like littlefinger's freaking out and i agree with you that his mind is doing backflips at that moment but i like that his face barely betrays it. Like, oh, I think, I yeah. think you're, you as an, you like, or not you, we as an audience members are like reading in uh, what Littlefinger is thinking at that moment. But I love how it basically is completely unfazed. Like Littlefinger is the one character who, who that doesn't freak out. And it's because, Joanna, he has envisioned every single possibility, including <laughs> the possibility that Bran might be a psychic. But maybe not. Uh, maybe he didn't see Arya coming. Um, <laughs> yes, Aiden Gillen. Like the, the camera is super tight first on Isaac Hempstead Wright's face when he says "chaos is a ladder," and then super tight on Littlefinger's face as he's registering it. And Aiden Gillen, you're right. His face doesn't change that much. But I real, I maybe I am reading too much into it. But I really feel like he was trying to give us like uh rapid calculations going on behind like sort of a blank demeanor agreed and, and I, then, I, loved it. I thought it was brilliant yeah yeah and then immediately rescued by mira like saved by the mira right, right. like saved she walks mira, in yeah, right, yeah uh, right motels on mars says Littlefinger was shook agreed uh mm-hmm. wait what says maybe Littlefinger was thinking wait did this kid talk to varus what the fuck varus you're way more powerful than i realized <laughs> <laughs> those are both real possibilities so uh very uh uh, Littlefinger leaves. Mira comes in, says goodbye to Bran. She's pretty pissed. Bran is at this point in the show completely unbearable. I mean, you were talking about how last week you're 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 sad that now every time Bran comes on screen, we're it's a bummer again. Yeah. It's not only bummer; it's like infuriating at this point. I mean, he just is he's. He has lost complete sense of any human decency. Uh, you know, she says like, "Hey." My, uh, you know, my brother died for you, and that's all I you're nearly say. died for you. I nearly you. died for yeah. you, right? I mean, we talked Poor about this Mira. last week. You know, she's going back to be with her family so that when the White Walkers come, she can at least like be with them, right? Mira, uh, we should point out, is one of only three people on the show to ever kill a White Walker. So, mm. uh, you know, if if John were smart, he would draft Mira into service. But I feel like we're never going to see Mira on the show again, to be honest with you. I think that's probably right. Um, but, uh, I, you know, I, I think they, they're they trying really hard to sort of strip extraneous characters away uh, so we can get things like we get at the end of this episode where it's just like main character versus main character. Um, and, and, you know, my apologies to Mira for calling her an extraneous character, but I would count people like people I love, like Lady Olena, people I don't like, like the Sand Snakes, blah, blah. They're sort of like peeling these people Way. And at the very least, Mira got this scene that sort of references how shitty her character has been treated. Uh, the fact that she sacrificed so much and this is all she gets is, um, you know, at least at least she gets to address that in this goodbye scene. And, uh, you know, I think it's interesting when she says and Bran doesn't really refute her when she says you died in that cave. You know what I mean? Not She's not saying it's like a shitty accusatory thing. It's just like a sad, like you're not Bran anymore, which is weird to me because this feels like um, 
uh, an in-between season decision they made because I don't feel like Bran was this this detached when he left the cave at the end of last season. And I also don't feel like Max von Sydow as a three-eyed raven was this detached. Yeah, like he, he was not as, he was not as dickish as yeah. Brian is being right now. Yeah, or you know, at least yeah, just like holy and I don't understand your <laughs> human ways. Um, so I, you know, I don't know. I'm sure I'm sure there will be a reason for it in the end. But right now, you know, <clears throat> but Dave Gonzalez brought this up this really interesting thing on the Storm and Spoilers podcast about Brand's function in the show, which is like because of Brand's particular set of skills which is knowing everything but not understanding everything and only referencing things kind of like accidentally or, you know, at random, that means that Bran is like a ticking exposition bomb that the show can deploy at any time, right? right? Like that any time Bran can drop some knowledge like who Jon Snow's parents are or what Littlefinger did in the past or like whatever it is. Uh, but then also not like he doesn't necessarily like he could be talking to someone and not blurt out what happened because maybe he hasn't accessed that at that moment because the show doesn't need him to. So it's both very clever, but also kind of um, cheap, cheap, a little cheap and also just sad because I, I feel like Isaac Hempstead, right? I think I said this last week, but I just feel like he did such a good job, especially in those stark flashbacks last season of like, I really enjoyed watching him as a more mature performer and, and really seeing Bran feel like the connection to his family. He did such a good job with that performance last year. So to see him, this is complete Android is just, it's so sad. Here's another question, Joanna. Uh, We've had a lot of talks about who is going to reveal the true lineage of Jon Snow. And we've we've just assumed it's Bran, but there is one other person alive who has that information, potentially, right? And that is Howland Reed, who is the only other person at the Tower of Joy along with Ned Stark that day. Right. Is Howland Reed still alive in the show? Do we know? Yes. Uh, okay. Mira's, I mean, Mira's dad, right? Yeah, he's he's definitely alive in the books. Show watch book readers have been expecting him to show up on the show for mm-hmm. years, and book readers have been expecting him to show up in the book for years with the knowledge of Jon Snow's parentage because this has been like a long time thing. Of people were like, Who else was at the Tower of Joy? It was Alan Reed. Alan Reed has the information, he's going to be the one to show up to tell everyone. He hasn't showed up in the books yet in the present, and um, I don't think we're ever going to get him on the show. Mm. I don't know that, but I don't, I think that they're not going to use Howland in that way in the show. Yeah. I I think that's, it's just, you know, just throwing, throwing it out there, throwing it out there as a possibility. All right. Arya shows up to Winterfell, very emotional return. She has a confrontation with guards. There is a confusing moment where they say, you know, uh, the lady of Winterfell or lady Stark is in charge yeah. of Winterfell, and she says, "Which Lady Stark?" Yeah. Um, the, you know, the, we got an email asking, like, why did she ask that? Because she knows Cat is dead, um, so the only other person that could be referring to is Sansa. Like, does she maybe think, I don't know, 
Bran got well, married. Yeah, Bran got Who knows? Yeah. I mean, it's <laughs> unclear what Arya knows and what she doesn't know. Right. You know what I mean? Like Arya has been abroad and didn't know that Jon was king of the north until, you know, Hot Pie told her and stuff like that. Right. So And uh, Maester Lewin and Sir Roderick, she didn't know that they were dead. She, yeah, right? she thought they were alive and stuff like that. So, uh, yeah, I guess maybe Bran got married. Maybe Rickon got married. Oh, yeah. Um, she, oh, she might. She doesn't know that Rickon's dead yet. Yeah, maybe Talisa's still alive. <laughs> like, I don't know. <laughs> you know, so. Right. Yeah, but, so, it, but, it, but yeah, anyway. Yeah, so uh, she has a funny banter with the guards. It's a callback to season one. She's, you know, Arya is forever destined to show up at gates of things and then be told that she doesn't belong inside. Uh, so season one, that happened at King's Landing. Season four, you right here in the show in season four. I don't remember that one. What what happened there? Uh, she goes to the airy with the hound. And when she gets there, oh, yeah. they're like, Lysa Aaron just died. Sansa's on the other side of that gate. Right. And she didn't know it at the time. And she just turns around and walks away. Uh, so, you know, like, I, you know, when I was writing about this episode, I was like, if this were a different season, like, maybe Arya would have walked away here. And we would have been like, ah, again. But right, uh, right. nevertheless, she persisted and she got into the courtyard. Indeed. So. And you write here, she gives them the slip. Uh, so apparently your, your, this, the show notes are inspired by like Miller's Crossing dialogue. Um, is, is, is the slip, uh, is the slip a a common, yeah, is the slip a common phrasing that people use these days? I don't know. It's a great, it's a great expression. Anyway, she gives them the slip, uh, but Sansa says she knows where to find her and they meet in, uh, the Stark crypt by Ned's statue. Joanna Robinson, did you cry? No. You did not Um, cry? I I got, I got emotion. I don't know if I cried, but I got pretty emotional. I got, I I was, I think this is the best reunion they've done on the show. I'll say that. Uh, Um, Even better than Bran's like lifelessly not hugging Sansa (laughs) back last week or something. I mean, I thought that was, that was going to be pretty hard to top. But then they dropped it. No. the well, a couple things I want to say. First of all, the the winter I loved the Winterfell guards, and that to me that was our Matt Shackman comedy moment. I thought I thought yeah, those guys were great, it was very good. And Brian Cogman said that they filmed that scene the day after the election, which uh, felt like a mood brightener to them because um, <clears throat> they felt like they needed it. Um, and yeah, so I want to say that. Oh, and then the other thing is in the crypt. Um, someone else brought this up to me. I did not think of this, but. I can't remember who it was. I apologize. But they were like, that moment in the crypt by Ned's statue (laughs) would be a great moment. Um, Okay. In the Battle of the Bastards, John says to lay Rickon's body near Ned's in the crypt. So they were standing right next to like Rickon's, um, you know, final resting place as well. So that would have been a nice place for Sansa to be like, Bran's home. Also, Rickon's home, too. He's right there. Mm. R.I.P. Rickon. But nobody mentions – no one ever cares or thinks about Rickon. Um, yeah, it's almost like Rickon is almost like a non-character of the type that you referred to <laughs> earlier in the show. Yeah, he's such a mirror. Anyway, um, <laughs> he uh, – I did like that they referenced the fact that that statue of Ned Stark looks nothing like Sean Bean. It's been bothering me. Yeah, and, so, and they explicitly <laughs> pointed out. And then you realize, oh, yeah, they don't have like a smartphone technology. You can't text a photo of Ned Stark to the, you know, the statue I mean, the, carver. Yeah, the statue of Lysa Stark. Uh, Lisa, nope, Lyanna Stark. Thank you, Lyanna Stark. Looks nothing like the actress they got to play her. So, um, you know, that's 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 the thing. Anyway, um, I loved this scene, um, and the reason I say it's the best reunion, better even than Bran and Sansa, is um, the shared history that we've seen between Arya and Sansa on the screen. Right. Um, 
Brandon and Sansa had zero, like, like I, I looked at it. I looked it up. It's like 30 seconds of interaction in season one. Uh, Sansa and John had literally no scenes together in season one. And so, but when you see Sansa and Arya, like we spent all of season one watching them squabble. And so they really, this really does feel like siblings reunited. And the fact that Maisie Williams and Sophie Turner are like best friends in real life. And so have this, uh, interesting, uh, natural chemistry I thought was really good. It's awkward and tense, but nice, uh, between them. And, um, I just, I thought they nailed it completely. I really loved it. It was so lovely. Shouldn't have run from the guards. I didn't run. You need better guards. <laughs> what suits you, Lady Stark? John left you in charge. He did. I hope he comes back soon. I remember how happy he was to see me when he sees you. His heart will probably stop. <laughs> It doesn't look like him. Should have been carved by someone who knew his face. Everyone who knew his face is dead. We're not. Then she makes reference to the list. She's like, I, you know, Joffrey is always at the top of my list. And Sansa's is like, what list? And Arya says, the list of people I'm going to kill, of course. And Sansa's is like, ha, 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 ha. Um, as though it's it's but not that's something even she... better than your little finger impression. Your your son's a laugh impression. <laughs> I mean, I think it's a little bit odd that Sansa doesn't take her super seriously because uh, you know Sansa's about to lead people into battle. You know, it's not like like the idea of killing people is is completely out of uh, Sansa's head. You know what I'm saying? But in any case, after they meet Bran and she and he, I think makes mention of the list, right? Uh, or, yeah. that's when you know Sansa knows oh wow Sansa's this is like, for real. oh shit it's real yeah yep yeah. yep I also I, I did think that Arya and Bran somehow landed better than Sansa and Bran that reunion um they also Bran, Bran and Arya had at least one scenes together in season one um I remember Arya so, showing him up with the arrow shooting exactly right? yeah. exactly so you at least have that dynamic to remember you remember those two kids and then to see them where, what they become that matters. Whereas Sansa and Bran had no history. So right. that we saw on screen. Um, yeah. So two out of three great reunions in this episode, <laughs> we'll get to the last one later. Right. So then, uh, Bran just like, Oh, I, I got this spare dagger. I don't know what to do with it. Here you go, Arya. And, uh, there it is, right? That's the dagger transfer. So, Yep, now Arya has it. Arya right. always wanted a Valyrian steel sword. She talked about it in season two with Tywin, so now she has, you know, at least a dagger. So right. that's cool. Valyrian steel is very expensive, and it can also kill White Walkers, right? Sure can. So I'm really excited. Like, you know, if I don't know what's going to happen. This is not a spoiler, because I don't know. But if Arya survives through to the final season, and if Arya gets to fight in the battle with her cousin John. And if Arya is just like running around knifing White Walkers with the Valerian steel dagger, it's going to be great. It's, it's going to be gonna awesome. It's going to be great. Yeah. It's going to be so. awesome. Yeah. So uh, Arya shows up to spar with Brienne in the Winterfell courtyard. And 
you know, th- this isn't the first time these characters have met before. Uh, Brienne fought the Hound for, uh, you know, to try to, I guess, defend Arya because she was sworn to defend the Stark children, I think. Is that, is that right? Am I right? remembering that correctly? She told Catelyn that she would protect like specifically her daughters who, right. who gives a shit about Rickon, uh, <laughs> you know, that she, <laughs> she would specifically find and protect her daughters, Arya and Sansa. And, uh, she kind of, she like failed twice and then she finally got Sansa and now Arya is home. And there's a great moment where pod is like, you know, basically Catelyn would be happy. And then he like calls Bran my lady. And like for the first time ever, Bran lets him and like pod may not be any better at sparring after right. three seasons of training with Brienne, but he has like worn her down in other ways. So, it's wonderful. You know, she says like, you know. I did nothing, which my reaction was, uh, yeah, I think technically you're right, Brienne. You didn't do anything. Um, yeah. but, <laughs> but she showed then- up in season six. <laughs> She showed up in season six right when she waited for that candle. Right, right. Uh, she got distracted by killing Stannis, but then she showed up for Sansa, Sansa in the woods and saved her from Ramsay Stocks. So yeah, yeah. she gets credit. True enough. Uh, so then they spar together. You wrote a great article about this at VanityFair.com, right? About like the meaning of this, uh, this fight that they have, right? Yes. I mean, yes. Would you like to give us a taste of, of what your insights were in that article? <laughs> Well, I felt like, I mean, I, I felt like what they were trying to do was show us something I've been thinking about a lot is the way in which the Stark children were raised by other people since their parents right. uh, died so early. And, uh, you know, this is true of, of Bran, who was, you know, like babysat by Jojen and Osha and eventually the Three-Eyed Raven. Um, Sansa, who was who had like Cersei and Littlefinger and all these other people sort of raising her and molding her. But then Arya had just like this parade of weirdos uh, shaping her. And I felt like this, this courtyard scene really showed off, I, I think intentionally showed off the influence of all these people. Um, she says something... Um, to pod about not fighting someone like Bran in the first place, which to me sounded very Tywin, uh, who she, you know, she was Tywin's cupbearer in season two. She, her fighting style mimics Serio Pharrell, the Hound, um, the stuff she learned from Jacken and the Waif, um, and her list comes from, uh, the Night's Watchman Yorin. So it was just sort of this whole like parade of this is how Arya has become Arya. And, um, you know, Sansa gives her this troubled look um as she see her sees her spar in the courtyard which i'm i'm don't feel like i have a full grasp on exactly what sansa's thinking she's obviously troubled who wouldn't be if they like hadn't seen their sister in years and she comes back and she's doing this shit and talking about killing a lot of people um there also seemed to be like a slight jealousy when you know, Arya asks to train with Brienne and she says, you know, you told you told our mother you'd protect both of us, right? And Brienne's like, that's right, my lady. And like, all of a sudden Sansa has to share Brienne with Arya. There seemed to be like a slight um, mm, I did not jealousy get that. there. I, I did not like, get that. But Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, if, if you rewatch or if anyone watches and, and felt that, that, that was like a, a one note of like a symphony that Sophie Turner was like trying to play up on that uh, balcony for me. And... Um, I don't know it's interesting. I, I don't like I said. I don't feel like I fully understand exactly how Sansa's feeling about Arya, but there's a lot of stuff there, and there's a lot of reasons why she would be right. perturbed by what she saw. Well, let me just say this: uh, Joan is being extremely modest right now. This article that she wrote is next level shit. 
uh, Game of Thrones analysis. So uh, we'll link to the show notes. It's called, um, what is it? The headline of the article is uh, Game of Thrones, the hidden meaning behind Arya's big fight. You have all these gifts, like analyzing all of Arya's inspirations. It, you know, I don't know that it, like, I, I don't know that it is what the producers intended, but I feel like this is a very strong case that it is. Uh, and so I, I would recommend anyone check out this article. In any case, it's a great fight. Uh, I don't. I can't remember the last time we've seen Arya that happy, right? Oh, uh, I am when, maybe, when she killed, maybe when she killed Walder Frey, but like. You I don't know. know when she. Oh, no, you're forgetting about the uplifting effect of Ed Sheeran. <laughs> <on the artist. laughs> oh, you're right. You're right. Uh, <clears throat> but, uh, but yeah, I mean, and like Brienne and Arya both seem to understand that they're like. It kind of equals, which, which like, it, it takes work to shoot a fight between a seven foot tall woman, you know, yeah. and a three foot tall woman, <laughs> and make it seem like an like an equal fight. Uh, I'm exaggerating the dimensions, of course, but you know what I mean. Like, oh, it's so good. It, it, it's an awesome, it's an awesome little scene, and uh, and seeing like them both exhilarated by the the battle, yeah. it's it's awesome. So. And Maisie, I mean, we saw Maisie get the, sorry, we saw Arya, played by Maisie Williams, get the shit beat out of her over and over again in the House of Black and White. And we saw her, like, staff fight a little. Uh, we've seen her sort of water dancing training by herself. But it's been, I don't think we've seen her do this kind of full-on swashbuckle fight. Um, and, you know, in season one, she was just still be in training. So I just, I don't think we've ever seen this from her. Maisie Williams... Uh, looks exquisite. Like we, you know, we've seen Gwendolyn Christie hack and smash, and right. she looks great. But like, just the way that Arya is like whirling and darting, and yeah, then, because, like, because usually, usually just... she's just owning dudes in like five seconds, right? She's usually like, she was it Marin Trant that she killed in? Uh, yeah, you know, she's she's like cutting his eyes out and killing him in like ten seconds. Like it's not, it's not a, it's not a fight. It's more Arya killing people. Uh, this is, you know, she is, yeah, she, she, it's, a, it's a wonderful dance, uh, wonderful ballet of, of sparring. Uh, and Jonah Robinson, like, you could end the episode right here. We're, we're 25, 30 minutes into this 50-minute episode. Just end right there. Already one of the best episodes of Game of Thrones, right? <laughs> Ar- like, Ar- yeah. just stop right there. Already great episode of Game of Thrones. Like, yeah. super happy with everything that's happened so far. Like, uh, I, you know, I can turn off the TV. I'm happy for the night. Uh, but the episode goes on. More sure stuff does. happens. Uh, one or two more things. One happen. or two more things happen. Dragonstone. Uh, Danny and Missende discuss Grey Worm and uh, the Unsullied and uh, how the two of them said goodbye. And uh, Missende alludes to some of their activities together. Uh, but then John interrupts. And I, I just want to mention, as the scene is going on, there's, just, there's these amazing rock striations in the background you see this right yeah like the the just the whole setting this whole beach setting is incredible it looks amazing okay anyway sorry so john interrupts to show <laughs> danny and Masende what was in the cave he and sir davos go into the cave with the ladies and then we hear a ton uh, we see a ton of dragon glass and hear a new musical cue uh that we haven't heard before so it might be alluding to kind of a new a new motif a new theme perhaps a love theme between danny and john uh, that's my so, like my suspicion is this is the Daenerys and Jon Snow love theme, or it's the holy shit dragon glass love theme. The dragon cla- <laughs> yeah, the holy shit dragon glass love theme. Yeah, exactly. I don't know. <laughs> um, so someone someone in the chat just asked where that is filmed. It's the Zumea Beach in Spain is where it's filmed. So there you go. 
John says, I have one more thing to show you, Danny, and takes her back even further into the cave. Uh, where he shows her cave paintings <laughs> of the first man. What? <laughs> What's so funny? I don't know. You're basically like, John's like, hey, want to see my etchings? <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, it, it, it's all want to come like, to my apartment and see my etchings? <laughs> I have one other thing to show you. And she's like, won't you bend the knee, John? You know, right. As we're back here. Anyway, uh, so she, he, she, he, takes her, <laughs> she, he takes her back there, Joanna, shows uh, her these cave paintings of the first men working with children of the forest to fight off the White Walkers. And I have to say, this, is, this scene is extraordinary, Joanna, because it is uh, – I'm going to put this out there as a, uh, I'm postulating this. This is the worst production value in Game of Thrones we've ever seen, juxtaposed with the best production value in Game of Thrones we've ever seen. <laughs> this scene, the, the cave paintings, look so prepared. awful. <laughs> compared, I was so prepared. Compared to like, the brilliance. Someone on Twitter prepared me that you hated these cave paintings, so I'm here. <laughs> bathe me in your hate. I'm ready for it. I, I mean, you know, they're, they're, I'm not the only one who's pointed this out. Like, there's like, like BuzzFeed articles or like, you know, meme roundup articles. Oh, talking BuzzFeed, about- eh? Um, no, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I, I know, well, I, I'm just saying. I'm just saying. A lot I, of people have, a lot of people have pointed I respect out. You write for BuzzFeed, so I don't. I don't mean that. But a, um, a, a lot of people have pointed out that, uh, yeah. it, like, it looks like John could have just done this right before Danny we'll entered see. the cave. That I do love. Like that, that a lot of people floated that to me, which I love. Because like, what better way to convince Daenerys that you're right than be like, Davos, do you have any chalk? Great, let's get to etching. And uh, do you have any blue chalk? Oh, this is really going to sell. The blue chalk is what's going to make the White Walkers really pop. Um, it's so funny because uh, I, I put that up on Twitter. I don't mean to keep referencing Brian Cogman, but he's so generous with like engaging with fans on Twitter that you actually get insight about things and when I when I posted that he's like that just, that literally just occurred to me too while I was watching the episode tonight Brian Cogman producer of Game of Thrones is like it does seem like John <laughs> made those um to convince Daenerys obviously in the context of the show he didn't I didn't hate I thought the White Walkers looked pretty stupid but I thought everything else looked like kind of fine I, I, I so I, I've been referencing <laughs> Owen Ellickson on Twitter. Uh, he's like one of my favorite Twitterers, and uh, he does like these imagined dialogues, uh, mm-hmm. uh, you know, between people. He used to do it during the election, but now he does it for Game of Thrones. And he says he's like first man number one. Like you know, these are the first men. He's like first man number one. I want to draw the sea. First man number two. Nope, blue is just for the eyes, so that they pop. By the way, popping's an idea I just invented. <laughs> Which I just love. (laughs) They they had blue eyes for some reason. It's just like so ridiculous. Um, (laughs) Joshua Grohl in the chat is uh, objecting to me using combining chalk and etching when clearly they are two different art forms. Mm. I do apologize. Yes. Um, I was going to bring this up to you, Anna, but... Oh, thank you. (laughs) Um, Something we shouldn't... Well, and and someone else... Well, actually, who was it? Um... Motels on Mars. Well, actually, me and said they played the new John and Danny Love theme last episode, too. So I'll have to go back and, and listen mm. for that. Someone else in the chat room uh, thinks that it's the same theme that they used to play for John and Egret. I highly doubt that, but maybe it is like very close. Uh, so someone with a better ear than I have will have to let me know sort of about those musical motifs. But uh, we should mention, of course, that John is has had experience with attractive ladies in caves before 
um, you know, this is where he and Egret consummated their relationship. So um, a lot of people pointed out that parallel. <clears throat> anyway, uh, in so the then- in the behind the scenes of the episode, um, Weiss and Benioff basically said like. We just have to put Amelia Clark and Kid Harrington together in a close space and just watch their chemistry explode. And um, I was complimentary of their chemistry last week. I still am inclined to be complimentary of their chemistry. I don't think it's like cave explosive chemistry, but I, you know, it's, it's there. It's I, sol- I see it. Solid. I respect it. It's, it's solid. solid. I mean, yeah. you didn't feel how hot things were when she's like, why don't you just bend the knee, John? <laughs> I need you to stop saying that. <laughs> What? I don't understand. What's wrong with me just saying um, bend, bend the knee? Um, we should, you know, you know, they do have this like really crazy exchange though because um, John's like, see, see these etchings. <laughs> obviously, I'm right. And Daenerys, yes, obviously, you're right. I will fight for you uh, if you bend the knee. And uh, and then she. Then the show does this crazy thing it does where sometimes characters quote other characters and it's meant to be like a fun callback, but it's also just crazy that Daenerys says literally the exact same thing that Jon Snow said to Mance Raider in season five mm. when he talks about the welfare of his people being more important than his pride. She lit, she word for word quotes Jon back to him in like a creepy Bran Stark sort of way. Right. And Jon's sort of like, hmm, my own words used against me. But like, <laughs> it's crazy that it's like a, it's a direct quote because it's meant to be, you know, to echo things. But it's like, but it, it's, takes takes me out of it for it to be a word for word quote uh, thrown back at him. But anyway, it just makes no sense to me that Daenerys is like, isn't is your pride more important than the welfare of your people? And I'm like, Daenerys, isn't it your pride that's like in the way of you helping the realm against Isomies? Um someone on Twitter called her like Little Miss Needs All Seven Kingdoms right now. Like, can you <laughs> save mankind from Isomies and then take the rest of the realm? Like what what is this about? So I think it's a little pot calling the kettle black talking about pride sort of thing and john does make at least because what we know of john snow is that he he's not a prideful person and so her accusing her of pride is is like you know misaimed because john i think john does make a compelling argument where he says you know my people will not be happy about this. We know we already saw that. They're they're xenophobic about Targaryens. They didn't even want him to go to Dragonstone in the first place. So if he comes back and he's like, JK guys, bent the knee to the Dragon Queen, like that is not gonna go over well with his people. He's right. It's not his pride, it's his people's stubbornness. And so I don't know. I'm 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 unimpressed with Daenerys's assessment of the right. situation. Here. Right. And you say you can't defeat them without my armies and my dragons. No, I don't think I can. I will fight for you. I will fight for the North. When you bend the knee. My people won't accept a southern ruler not after everything they've suffered they will if their king does they chose you to lead them they chose you to protect them 
Isn't their survival more important than your pride? Fair enough, Jonah. I think that's the very astute points there. Uh, but the function of this whole scene was basically for Danny to now believe John in some way, right? She's seen the right. cave paintings. Now she believes John. I mean, those cave paintings are definite proof that something happened in that cave slight, at least slightly before they went in that cave. So at least five minutes ago. <laughs> at least five Davos minutes was prior. like brushing the chalk <laughs> off his hand. Yeah. <laughs> oh man. So it, pretty silly. Pretty silly. But anyway. Uh, there's some more stuff that happens uh, at Dragonstone. John and Davos are talking uh, about John's crush on Danny, and Mesende asks them about the concept of uh, being a bastard because there's no marriage in Noth, and so there are no bastards. Uh, you know, interesting language thing again. I didn't know if there's anything significant we should take away from this, Joanna. Like, was there? Uh, do you think there's a reason the show pointed this out, or is it just to illustrate that like different people? Like, different cultures perceive people in different ways, maybe? Mm. No comment. Okay. Um, we skip the part where they walk out of the cave and Daenerys gets the bad news. Right. More bad news. And then, and then she actually chews out Tyrion about how he's doing a <laughs> shitty job. Uh, well, it felt, it, and it felt kind of accurate for her to be like, are you holding back because you love your brother so much? Right. Um, and I don't think that's inaccurate, right? And um, as the rest of the episode bears out, I think. And what's interesting, though, is that she turns to John, and she's like, what would you do? She wants to basically go carpet bomb King's Landing, right? And she's like, what would you do? And he basically says, if you do that... You're just more of the same, which is like you're another Cersei, you're another Mad King Ares. If you right, do that, you melt, melt castles. It is a great point. And so what we see, I mean, you know, spoiler for what we're going to talk about later in the episode, but what we see is I think her taking John's advice. This, this to me, what she does is a compromise between what right. she wanted to do. Um, is she attacks, you know, soldiers in a field versus uh, innocent city is civilians in a in a city, right. um, and what frustrated me a little bit about that beach scene is that they cut away as she sort of like learned the, you know, Varys is like, Varys and Tyrion are like, Hey, we took Casterly rock. And she's like, that's great news. Right. And then it just cuts away and then she's pissed. So we don't see Miss Sandy find out that her boyfriend is stranded in a castle on the other side of the continent. Um, you know, I would have liked to have seen her face at least. Right. If, if they're going to like spend, I don't know, 20 minutes or however long that sex scene was between them, like I would like to then see this other fallout from that relationship that they are trying to make important on the show, if that makes sense. Right. Um, it's almost like right. that uh, relationship has been treated mostly as an afterthought in the show. Almost. Um, yeah, but the um, the Davos... Jon Snow, Missandei scene. Uh, you can't call Davos, me. Is, I know, but is Davos hitting on Missandei? Like last week, I was really resistant to that idea, but this week, it seems like he is, and that's. I didn't get I that. Know. I didn't get that. Okay. but you know, you know right. people can disagree. And then, so uh, a Greyjoy ship shows up. It's like the one surviving ship from the Greyjoy fleet, apparently. Uh, and Theon and John have a confrontation and it just oh man like all the Starks so are meeting fair. again you know in this episode it's crazy all, all, all my dreams are coming true Joanna <laughs> in terms of what I want to see on this show uh, it just took several years longer than I would have preferred but still the build up made it more worth it 
And uh, John is super pissed. And I believe the reason he's super pissed is because uh, of Theon turning on Rob and also uh, Theon, like, burning the other Stark kid, like, purporting to burn the other Stark kids, right? Is there, is there, like, what is the reasoning behind John being super pissed? Oh, yeah, he... <laughs> He killed Sir Roderick Cassell. That's right. He yeah. burned Winterfell to the ground. Yeah, I remember that. Burned yeah. a couple farm kids. He didn't actually burn Brandon Rickon, and, and John knows that. But um, you know, he burned a com- couple rando kids. So you know, for all of that, betrayed Rob. For all of that, uh, he should hate Theon. But because Theon rescued Sansa, like he gets a reprieve. I think. In an episode full of great performances, I genuinely think that Alfie Allen has the best performance of this episode. He has very little to say. He's just like, John, I didn't know you'd be here. <laughs> Sense okay? Very little. He, I think he does it so well. Uh, just like, just that John alone, I think, is incredible. So, you know, I kudos to Alfie Allen, yeah, who I, I just think is I, so good. I, I agree with you. It's very good. Uh, I, I don't know that I have the same reaction to it as you, but I, I think it's it's a strong performance and it's a great moment. And uh, again, here's another thing. You could end the episode right We're like 35 minutes in. End the episode right here. Oh, my gosh. I, I feel like abundance of riches are raining down from the sky already. I'm like, this is amazing. Best episode of all time. Already. Okay? I'm done. Uh, then Theon says, where's the queen? The queen's gone. Where's the queen? Cut to, for some reason, Braun and Jamie in the middle of the field. Now, usually, when someone says, where's the queen? You cut someplace. You're showing where the queen's going to be. So I'm thinking that, to myself, this, yeah. yeah. So I'm thinking to myself, huh, what's up with this? What's up? Why is there a conversation <laughs> going on here? And so they have a little dialogue. And there's some actually like pretty decent exposition, expositional dialogue, right, about how, oh, well, we got all the, uh, we got all the gold into King's Landing. So uh, yeah. that's all done, but we don't have, we haven't gotten the food all in there yet, right? Good old Lord Randall Exposition Tarly. Yes, exactly. <laughs> He's given a lot of this heavy lifting to do. But yeah, basically, I mean, there was a scene with them earlier in the episode. Basically, what we know is that they're on a long rat wagon trail, that they've collected all the food from the Reach, which is, you know, the area around High Garden. And uh, the, the gold is made into the walls of King's Landing, but not all the food has. Some of some of the we don't know how much of the food has gone in. We know not all of it has. Randall's like, how about we flog everyone to get them a going? And uh, Jamie and Bron have this moment where they're like, we're bad guys sometimes, and we're not as bad as this dude. This dude sucks. Yeah, let's just and hold Jamie's off like, on the flogging for a little yeah. bit. <laughs> Jamie's like, how about not? He's like, these men fought well at High Garden, so this is our first like Jamie cares about his men moment. Um, you know, that he's a he's a good general. He cares about his men. Yeah. They're good fighting men. Uh, and then we see that more specifically directed at Randall's son, Dickon, who not only has been recast by a different actor since last season, but has gotten a completely different personality <laughs> this season where he's actually kind of a nice guy. Whereas last season he was a terrible, snotty bully who was an asshole to Sam. Um, you know, so new actor, new personality. This Dickon is a nice kid who has an unfortunate name and uh, didn't like killing those um, Tyrell men at High Garden because they're longtime allies. So right after that exchange, uh, Braun starts to hear hoofbeats. And uh, this part is incredible because there's so much buildup 
we hear the hoofbeats for so long before we see them. And uh, so I just watched Dunkirk in movie theaters, right? Uh, great mm. film by Christopher Nolan. I saw the movie twice. Mm. And uh, the score is actually extremely similar. Uh, it's this kind of like ambient build. Mm. You know, like you hear like uh, it, it almost sounds like just like a single, con- like a continuous note that like is building on itself. And it, it was very like a similar situation in Dunkirk where the, these people who are trapped in this small area and then they're completely overwhelmed. Uh, same thing here, too. And they both used not only like kind of the same setup, but also it felt to me like the same uh, musical techniques as well. Uh, so I, I thought the anticipation was amazing because you hear them for so long before you see them. And then the Dothraki horde comes in. Uh, and Braun says to Jamie, hey, get back to King's Landing. And Jamie says he'll stay. He's, he's not going to leave his men, which is yet another, another point for Jamie. Not only is he delaying the flogging, but he's also not a coward who runs away, right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and then uh, we see Danny in her dragon arrive, and it's an amazing moment. And, you know, Joanna, I remember last week you talked about how you weren't super crazy about the dragon effect last week when we saw them for like five seconds. I feel They're like they were saving, saving their, their money, money for yep. this episode. I, I would say overall the dragon effects look pretty great. And not only that, but the way they combine the dragon into, uh, you know, obviously the dragon's not real, but a lot of the explosions are real. Uh, you yeah. know, the, the uh, convoy uh, exploding, in, you know, as though a dragon is like using a fireball to destroy it. Uh, it, it just, it's so beautiful every and let's talk more generally about this whole sequence i felt like first first of all they're topping themselves when it comes to battle of the bastards i think so it's like as complex in terms of the battle but they added fire which makes things way more tricky to shoot dragon right and a dragon right (laughs) yeah and uh it's it just is uh, and also like the the filming techniques you know hbo has a great uh behind the scenes uh documentary about this Yes, which I watched today. Yeah, it was great. And it shows that they use all kinds of techniques to achieve what you saw uh, in the episode, including a cable cam that uh, moves the camera at about 70 miles per hour, which is really fast. And you feel like all those shots of the Dothraki riding in when you feel like you're right there with the action, that's like the camera on either uh, like attached to a truck or a dune buggy, or on a cable cam moving super fast. There's also a, a very high-speed drone that they used to film this. Mm-hmm. And it it looks and feels incredible. Every five seconds, there was something that was epic. Like, they're, they're, you know, I remember in season one of the show, they had so little money that they couldn't even show battle. Like, sometimes they would just show aftermath of battles, right? Yeah. Like, that was... Tyrion gets knocked, knocked out, and then right. he's like, what did I miss? Yeah. Or, you know, in season two, they build to this big explosion. Right of right. Um, a Blackwater Bay with a wildfire or whatever, and they, they would often build to this one big moment. This battle felt like it had you know fifteen of those big moments. Right, like any individual sequence from this battle sequence felt like it could have been the climax of a previous season's battle sequence. Yeah. Um, so I was absolutely blown away by it. But I know you know your uh, like slash dislike for battle sequences has been. <laughs> You know, mixed in the well, past. Well documented. It has been well no, documented, yeah. So what did you think I of love a battle sequence when I am really emotionally invested. So Hard Home uh, remains one of my favorite episodes ever. Um, 
I loved this, uh, except for one quibble, which we will talk about at the very end. But um, I thought this was incredible. The special effects were amazing. Um, in that behind-the-scenes uh, you know, featurette that they did, uh, a couple things stand out. One was, in the trailers for Season 7, my favorite shot was these stunt writers, these Dothraki stunt writers, oh. where they're doing like uh, <laughs> what... Well, one of my Stormer Spoilers co-hosts uh, called Horse Parkour. Um, they're standing, they're stunt riding. They're standing up on their horses. Um, and in the behind-the-scenes featurette, you see how that was done by actual stunt riders with this, like, special stirrups that they built. And you see them practicing, like, in their jeans and sweatshirts on the back of these, like, horses. And it just looks amazing. And, and you know, it's just incredible. I mean, that, uh, you know, the, the dragon looked incredible. Every second of the dragon looked incredible. The those Dothraki like getting up on their horses that to me that took my breath entirely away. I loved it. Um, it's like every five seconds they're throwing some. Like, oh, you've never seen this before. Here's another thing you've never seen before. Here's another yeah. thing. Here's another thing. Anyway, sorry. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah. And then, um, but the but the, but what I thought was most interesting, um, you know, which I had already felt, but was glad to have confirmed from Matt Shackman, the director, is that you know he, he felt. You know, he and the writers felt that it's very important to ground a battle in a point of view. Mm. And so often that point of view has been Kit Harrington's Jon Snow, which has been problematic for me sometimes because I don't find Jon Snow to be the um, deepest character we have in the cast. Um, I loved Hard Home, but uh, Battle for Castle Blast and Battle of the Bastards, not not my favorite. Um this point of view is Jamie, and I am a sucker for Jamie Lannister. So this battle worked much better on me. Um, you're not going to have uh, Amelia Clark Daenerys' point of view because she's zooming around on a dragon. You're going to have um, the point of view on the ground. And a couple of the things that they said in the featurette was about how, you know, essentially Daenerys has brought this weapon <laughs> that they've never seen, that Jamie Lannister has never seen, no one has ever seen. On Westeros. So uh, it's like seeing, a you know, we've long joked about the dragons being the weapons of mass destruction, but it truly is like seeing a chemical weapon that you've never seen deployed. And so there are these shots of these men turned to ash and just blowing away and Jamie yeah. watching it. Like kind um, of nuclear, like a yeah. Pompeii or like some kind of nuclear explosion. Yeah, and so he's just watching like his entire world change because he's like, "Holy shit! I I have been in so many battles. I don't know what to do here. What do right. I do here?" Right. Um, you know, you've got Bronn by his side, who's also a, a character that we're interested in, and you have what Game of Thrones is best at, and and what we didn't have necessarily at um, Battle of the Bastards or oh, we had a little bit of Castle Black is. Um, characters on both sides of the fight that you care about. And so then we all become Tyrion watching from the sidelines as we're like, well, we don't want Daenerys and Drogon to get hurt, but we don't want Bronn and Jaime to get hurt. So what the hell do we do in this battle? You know, and it, like the, I really do feel like that's Game of Thrones at its best. Like um, I was thinking back to the season one when Catelyn Stark takes Tyrion Lannister hostage and you're like, who do I root for here? Right, right. Um, or Blackwater to a lesser extent, like you, you, we just met Davos, so we didn't care that much about him, but still it's like Davos on one side and Tyrion on another. So like that, that is always more interesting than like 
um, nice watchmen versus ice zombies or, you know, what I fear season eight is going to be, which is just like all of humanity against ice zombies. Like that sounds deeply boring to me. This was great. Just great. I loved it. Yes. Agreed completely. Uh, and by the way, we, we haven't talked about exactly where they are geographically. Right. Uh, but my perception was they're, they're kind of outside King's Landing. Is that? Yeah, they're, they're, um, there's a place called the Gold Road, and then there's the Rose Road, and then there's um, – uh, Randall Tarley mentions the Blackwater Rush, which is the river that goes into Blackwater Bay. So that's the river that, you know, the whole thing sort of ends with the river. That's that's the river that they're on. So they're, yeah, kind of within striking distance of King's Landing on this sort of meadow on the way to King's Landing. Mm-hmm. And um, the reason that's significant is there is – uh, okay, I have, I have two quibbles with this scene. One we will get to at the very end. But before we get to that, I really just like the fact that the uh, writers and directors and producers are calling this uh, the loot train battle or the loot train attack. That to me sounds so undramatic and right. terrible. I hate it. Um, <laughs> in the books, there's something – there's a battle from Aegon's conquest, you know, Daenerys' ancestor Aegon, when he took Seven Kingdoms, there was a there was a battle called the Field of Fire, which took place mm. exactly where this battle takes place. And it was the only much time – it much was more dramatic name. Right? And it's the Lannisters and the Tyrells versus the Targaryens. It, it, this is a clear homage to that. They did the Field of Fire battle only with Daenerys on her dragon instead of – Viser- uh, sorry, Aegon and Visenya and Rhaenya on their dragons. And this that battle was the only time that all three of those dragons fought together. They, you know, they set the field aflame. The the Lannisters lose, you know, like it's, it's, it's a direct echo. So I don't know why they're not just calling this the field of fire battle. That's what they should call it. Um, the, the loot train battle sounds like a minor sequence in a, uh, like an action video game. You know, it's... Uh, <laughs> It's it's a pretty terrible title. Like or like what it what's the name of the I mean I don't want to diminish this episode because it's a great episode but what's the name of the Breaking Bad episode where it's like a train a train heist I don't know that's that's like that's what came to mind for some reason um, but that's a great episode of television Dead, anyway Dead um, Freight was Dead the, Freight yeah um, much better name um, but anyway um, yeah so that's where they are uh, north of the Reach gotcha uh, on gotcha. the way to King's Landing. So uh, Jay in Colorado wrote into a cast of kings gmail.com to your last point um, that he was talking about this, this battle had him sweating no matter what the result may have been. If Braun dies, I'm crushed. If Jamie dies, I'm crushed. If Danny dies, okay, well, I never really worried about her. She has way more storyline to fulfill. I'm not sure I have ever found myself cheering for quote-unquote villains before. Um, so anyway, he just wanted to share that. Like he is also very torn on who he should root for in this scene, and I agree. Mm-hmm. You're rooting for both Danny and Jamie to some degree, right? Mm-hmm. So uh, love. It's that. why I mean, sorry, go ahead. No, I just love that dynamic. But go ahead. I I before this season even started, I pitched my editor Katie Rich at VanityFair dot com on this article about how Jamie Lannister is the most important character on the show. And a lot of people will roll their eyes because a they don't really like get my interest in Jamie Lannister or b I don't know. But anyway, point being, it's not just my my fascination with Jamie Lannister, which I admit is is one that not everyone shares. But um, I just he's so I kind of wrote a version of that article last night because like 
you know, we'll talk about the ending of this episode of whether or not he's dead, but like, I just don't think there's any way he's dead because he's so important to the show right now because he does make this conflict between King's Landing and Team Targaryen so interesting because Tyrion and Jamie love each other and Jamie's the only character in King's Landing now that like the Tyrells are dead and Tommen's dead. You know, and Cersei's gone like full villain, and then you've got like Kyburn in the mountain. Like Jamie's the only one on that side. Um, I mean, unless you're like just love Euron and want to see him succeed. Like Jamie's the one that makes it interesting, mm. makes it really interesting to me. And so I, I think the show. I mean, if he survives, I don't think he's going to like. He can't stay in this position. But right now, I feel like the show really needs him in this position to complicate the conflict and to make us all feel like Tyrion on the side of the battlefield and, and not know who to root for. And, um, yeah. And I, I feel, I, yeah, I feel like this, this episode took full advantage of that until the ending, which I feel like is, uh, it was kind of a, a misstep. I feel like the ending was actually a big misstep. Yeah. Um, yeah. So we'll get to that. We'll get to that. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, Drogon and, uh, the Dothraki lay waste to the entire fleet of Lannister men, uh, I mean, we, it's, it's extremely likely that Ed Sheeran is among those who are completely destroyed uh, in the battle, which I think completely redeems the show from earlier on, right? <laughs> Do you say extremely likely? Yes, yes. Yes, I think, sure. I think, yes. I think it's Ed almost Sheeran certain that Ed Sheeran's Ash, character is dead. Ash Sheeran, yeah. yeah uh-huh. Ash Sheeran, very nice. Uh-huh. Um, Ed Ash Sheeran? Okay, anyway... <laughs> I was just trying it out. I'm trying um, to punch up my joke. So, yeah, we're building on each other, Joanna. We're building. <laughs> okay, we're building a, a house of jokes. Um, so l- let me say this: this is easily top five Game of Thrones episodes for me ever. Like of all. Oh time. wow! Of all time. Okay. Maybe right. top three. I'm not sure. Just I, I was. My mind was so blown by this whole action sequence. Coming after like a bunch of awesome character work that happened earlier in the episode, so you, I got to have my cake and eat it too. Got to have both the the nice drama and also a spectacular action sequence that showed us something new. One thing that they revealed in the um, in the uh, featurette is that they lit twenty men on fire at once, which yeah. is like apparently a record. Uh, and there's a reason you don't see that many men on fire on screen at the same time. It's because it's incredibly dangerous because you need to be able to put all those men out at once. And so the safety requirements are very high. And uh, you you feel it. Like when you're watching it, you feel like, I don't feel like I've seen this many men on fire at the same time before. Uh, and so I think it's very, very successful on that front. But Joanna, so I'm, I'm, I'm saying all those things, those nice things about the episode to say I love the episode. It's amazing. But yeah. we do have some nits to pick. And one of the nits is, what is the point of carrying a massive dragon arrow if you're not going to have like a standard operating procedure for how you handle it? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, if, they're, if they freaking have the dragon arrow with them, you'd think that they would ha- say, hey, by the way, in case you see, like, break in case of dragon, you know? Like you'd have men who are running to it versus like Braun just happening to like get to it because Jamie told him to. Do you know what I'm saying? Braun at least like looked like he had been trained on it. So, you know what I mean? Like he knew how to operate it. So there's there was at least some training that happened, right? I, I guess or, or you know, I don't I, I think. I hear you. There should yeah. have been a, a dedicated 
scorpion attendant um, I, I agree. specialist. And, and uh, you know, but, uh, but that didn't, I don't know, that didn't really bother me. Maybe I was just distracted by that red tracking shot on Braun as he ran to the scorpion. Right. Uh, uh, a listener to the show, uh, Scott, uh, said something uh, to me in a message that I thought was kind of profound. He said, I attended a wilderness survival seminar many years ago, and one of the instructors said something that really stuck with me. If you pack all these gadgets in your backpack, but you haven't tested any of them or practiced their use, then what you're carrying around is not a tool for survival, but a totem for survival. I.e., it is a spiritual symbol that represents a need for survival, like a flashlight or a fire starter kit or a water filtration system. If you don't test these things in practice with them, you're just packing your bag full of trinkets. That was my thought after seeing Jamie ask Braun to go ahead and get to the scorpion after the dragon had already ton- done a ton of damage. They were just toting around a very heavy trinket. Anyway. Um, yeah, that's a good, that's a good message. Um, maybe it played out like this. Jamie's like, we're going to go attack Tide Garden. And Cersei's like, why don't you bring the thing that Kyburn made? And he's like, I, I don't want to bring fuck it, a huge crossbow. Fuck that thing. <laughs> Everyone who watched the show made fun of it. I, Jamie Lannister, cannot even operate it because they only have one hand. I don't want to take it, Cersei. Cersei's like, take the scorpion. Kyburn will be so happy if you just, just take it. Just make him happy and take it. And they took it, never thinking they were going to have to use it. And they're like, oh, shit. And Bronn's like, good thing I know how to use this thing. I All right, Jonah, you win. You win this one. You win Do this I? One. Okay. I think that's. I think that's very plausible. I also, you know, t- we we referenced uh, a a reference to Blade Runner earlier, but I like to think that the moment when Braun fires an arrow through uh. a Dothraki was a reference to John Woo's film starring John Travolta, Broken Arrow. No. <laughs> you ever see that movie? Yeah, of course I have. Spoiler for Broken Arrow. At the end of that movie. <laughs> Uh, you know, Christian Slater. Christian Slater kind of position. Yeah. I don't know if he actually does this. Well, uh, yeah. I mean, basically, he shoots a nuclear warhead into John Travolta's body, uh, in like outside of a train car, which like looks very similar to what happened to the Dothraki guy here. That's so funny. Um, anyway, okay. So, um, she- but uh, Gustavo, who you mentioned earlier, Wiki Rassels pointed out that when Braun does shoot Drogon, uh, that to him looks like a a Jaws. Jaws callback. Mm. So, Roy, so Roy Scheider sort of like with the with the gun aiming at Jaws. Ah, yeah, yeah. Uh, a lot of potential movie callbacks in this episode. So, uh, Bronn shoots at Drogon, is unsuccessful, shoots again, hits Drogon kind of in the shoulder, chestal area, right? And then Drogon is super pissed and yeah. completely destroys the ballista. Um, that And, like, for some, you know, <laughs> for some reason... Barely singes Braun in the process, but you know, whatever. Uh, and then Drogon lands so Danny can hopelessly try to pull this massive arrow out of his chest. Uh, and that's when Jamie makes his last stand, right? Charge. He, yes. he grabs a spear off some dead person. And by the way, you, you already mentioned like that long continuous shot with Braun. I thought it was great. My favorite part of that scene is when. This guy is like, this guy is on fire, wandering around like in a daze, and a horse just completely takes him out. I felt it was a great encapsulation of the chaos of, of battle. Anyway, uh, so Jamie grabs a spear, and it is the most epic camera shot. Uh, mm-hmm. One of the most cam- epic camera shots I've ever seen, where they're using this thing, uh, this like spider cam or whatever it's called, like that's on a, on a zip line, and it's like running parallel to Jamie and you see you see the whole battlefield behind him 
Like, yeah. it's just like stuff's going on. Like, and it goes on for. That I mean, field is on fire. Yes, is what I'm yes. saying. And whatever combination of visual or special effects, it looked real to me. I mean, it I, looks great. Yeah, it looks so good. And uh, Jamie does not quite get. I mean, you know, he, he's thinking. I, I don't even think he's thinking. It's a. Um, it's not necessarily like a, a heroic. I mean, it's a heroic act, but I don't even think it's a selfish act. Like. I don't think he wants glory for himself. I think he's like, if I can kill this woman, like maybe I can stop the the carnage, right? Um, and right before he gets there, Braun comes in and tackles him off and throws him into the water. Is that right? Like we think it's Braun because the co- the horse is the same color, right? What was your intu- it's, it's Braun, yeah. Yeah. I mean, having made several gifts of this moment last night, I can tell you that that was definitely broad doing it. Um, which, uh, you know, a lot of people have mentioned to me feels out of character for Braun. Do we, uh, do we have an email about this? Yeah, Tara remember. from yeah. Tennessee wrote in, um, while Braun has done brave things in the past, it seems well established that his self interest overrides any otherwise heroic instincts. That was the whole reason he refused to be Tyrion's champion. He didn't think he could beat the mountain and he was offered a title not to try. He would not put himself on the line for his best friend. Running headfirst into Dragonfire seems contrary to this established character trait. What say you, Joanna Robinson? Yeah, I agree. I don't really get it. My only explanation is that Bronn dropped the gold that he was given. So maybe he's like, shit, in order to get more gold, I'm going to have to save Jamie Lannister or at least get that gold hand off him. But uh, it it did. Like, you know, Bronn Bronn liked Tyrion better. I feel like Bronn liked Tyrion better than he ever liked Jamie. And Bronn wouldn't fight for Tyrion because Cersei gave him a better offer. So, like, it just, Bronn is not the sacrificial type. He put himself right in the line of danger to save Jamie. And that just, I agree. It, you know, for, for a character who's been so, like, blunt about being a sellsword, um, this, this seemed out of character. But, but it's not even, like, I just don't even have enough exasperation to waste on that because I'm so exasperated by this silly cliffhanger right well being, the, being the period on the sentence of this of this great great battle scene so the, i mean there's also the scene earlier where Braun kind of loses his gold right and that's what i just said yeah yeah, yeah. i mean he just um that he dropped his gold and maybe he thought saving jamie was the only way he could get yeah, another bag of gold yeah i guess the, I, certainly that's not what came to mind for me you, you know it, it seemed like it was set up as a heroic act by Braun. Yeah. So I agree that it's not a good, it's not a good setup payoff kind of moment. Uh, um, but I'll, Jamie's charge, uh, I feel like that is a great character moment uh, oh, yeah, for a couple, yeah. for a couple of reasons. One is, um, you know, we we haven't seen Jamie um, do a lot of, you know, ever since he lost his hand, he hasn't gotten to do a lot of the things that he was once so famous for. But he was a famous jouster once. And so, you know, he's guiding his horse with his good hand and sort of holding the the lance with his bad arm hand. Um, And it's sort of the best thing he can do with what he has is joust, basically. And so it's like old instincts take over, right? And he jousts. And um, it's, I think it's heroic. I think it's um, uh, foolhardy. You know, um, and I, I think it's a great a great moment. He's he's hoping that he can take out this dragon, or maybe take out Daenerys and the dragon, or whatever, and end the war right here. Right. And and stop the destruction of these men, of these men all around him, and yeah. uh, and and is willing to die trying to do that. It's fundamentally a selfless act, I think. 
right? Yeah. Um, and, you know, Tyrion has a great moment because he's very torn about this, right? You know? Yeah. Uh, his favorite Lannister is there fighting against uh, the woman he is committed to serving. Mm-hmm. Uh, so a lot of uh, ambivalent feelings there. So then Braun knocks Jamie off. Uh, and even though Jamie is in this very shallow water with this horse galloping, again, in incredibly epic fashion. I mean, the fact that there's freaking water on the ground just makes it look more incredible. Uh, but it knocks him over and like, <laughs> apparently that shallow water is on the edge of a cliff, right? Um, because he falls down like 15, 20 feet. And well, then- I watched it again. Uh, right before we went to air, because I agree, a lot of people are like, "How is the water shallow?" And then it's deep. This this is a river, so there could like in theoretically be at least a, a significant drop off. I've been in rivers where there are significant drop offs like that, but um, it, you know, first you see the two bodies hit the water. You see them in the water, and you see the bottom. Actually, it's not that far down from where they hit the water. You see the bottom of where they're falling. And then the next shot of Jamie sinking is just, I think, kind of deceptive because it just like looks like he's sinking so far down. But we've already seen the bottom. It's really not that far. And so it's just a dramatic, deceptive shot that is just silly because we know Jamie Lannister isn't dead. And it reminds me of that episode where Arya got stabbed on the bridge of Bravos, And we're like, this is silly. This is not Arya is not dead. Why are you even doing this? You know no, what I mean? Now, it's so here's, like, now here's a question. Like, um, okay. I, I, I will say that the moment when they enter the water and the flame goes above them, oh, so good. So good. Uh, and also very similar to a, a, a uh, shot in Dunkirk that happens, actually, uh, where, like, someone submerges in water and then, like, this massive fireball is above them. Um, very dramatic uh, and very well done. But... We had we had some people write in. We had some people say like, "Hey, we didn't see Lady Olena die last week. You know, um, maybe she's still alive. Maybe Jamie didn't give her poison." Like, I find that speculation to be ludicrous. Now, of course, like I think that it's it's a completely different scenario here. But you and I are both very confident that Lady Olena's dead and that Jamie isn't. Why mm-hmm. is that? Why is that the case? Like, what 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 gives you the confidence that Jamie's not dead? You know, it's funny. I was thinking about this. Like, um, I, I felt so confident earlier today because I was like, for a main character to die on Game, for a main character to die on Game of Thrones, and Nicola Costa Waldo, I think, is like second build to Peter Dinklage at this point on Game of Thrones, whether fair or not, he is. Um, it needs to be really wrapped up in a character moment, and. You know, so I was like, this this isn't enough of a character moment for Jamie. Jamie's not going to be like a casualty of war death in this way. But then, uh, you know, right now, as I'm thinking about it, like having just talked to you about how this was a big character moment for Jamie, <laughs> right. I'm like, I'm like, well, maybe I'm wrong. But I really do feel like not just going back to the Valenquar prophecy that we were talking about earlier, but just like his death needs to be tied up with Cersei's a little bit more closely for me to be satisfied. And um, I just don't feel like this stupid drowning cliffhanger is it. I, I just I don't know why they keep doing this. It's a, it's a show invented thing entirely. It's never convincing to me. And um, you know, especially given like all the pushback there was on like the fake cliffhanger death fake outs of of the walking dead over the past few seasons. Like, I just don't know why Game of Thrones thinks it needs to go to this. Well, it the, the battle scene did not need this at all. 
and um, to make it compelling. And, you know, deaths, big deaths originally in Game of Thrones. And, and Game of Thrones, of course, is famous that anyone can die at any time. But those deaths, like, they take place within the episode and then you're dealing with the aftermath of it in that episode, right? Like, Ned Stark dies and then you're dealing with, like, you know, Arya's sense of being upset. Or the Red Wedding happens and you're dealing with all of that as it's happening. You know, it's not... I, I, I just don't feel that... Um, yeah, maybe I'm wrong. Like Hodor, I guess, was at the end of the episode, but it just, it just like. Well, well, okay, okay, hold on. I mean, with Hodor, like you knew that character was dead, though. You know. Yeah. I, I mean, let's put it this way: if Hodor comes back later on, then we'll feel like we were really like manipulated in a bad way, right? Yeah, and um, Raymond Raymond Terry, who's always right about everything, as far as I'm concerned, in our chat room right now, is saying. Th- that Jamie's this Jamie Cliffhanger is the same as with John's death. The off season of uh, mystery isn't for journalists or podcast listeners. It's for fans, casuals, if you want to be blunt. So the casual fan is probably maybe who who doesn't engage with the show, you know, who, who doesn't like listen to podcasts or read articles or anything like that. It's just sort of like, is Jamie dead? I don't know. I'll, I'll tune in next week to find out, you know, or, or the binge watcher years from now, who's like, ah, play the next episode, find out if Jamie's still alive. Um, but for uh, anyone who likes to think about the show in depth, things like the John, like after the John, like the fact that they are still doing these cliffhangers after the John cliffhanger is is crazy to me. But, you know, I don't know. I, I think, you know, I, I am not as sure as you are that Jamie is alive. Okay. But uh, I'm pretty sure he is. A lot of people pointed out, well, if, if you were going to kill Jamie – in this episode, you would have had him die by fire in some spectacular fashion. You wouldn't have had him just knocked over and drowned under his armor. That feels like a very not a great death. And furthermore, I, I will say, even though I'm, I'm less sure of Jamie being alive, if he is alive, I'll be pretty pissed at that they ended it this way. You know, so, so basically what I'm saying is, I, I'm okay with him ending it like this if he's actually dead, because then that's like truly shocking and, and subversive and, and awesome. And I'm, I'm because of what the show's done in the past. It's earned enough credit for me that I'm willing to say, "Hey, maybe he is dead." But mm-hmm. I, I think I don't think he's dead. I think you're right. And I think once we find out about it, I'll be pretty pissed next week. <laughs> like I will share in your anger, but I'm not going to share in it until uh, it's confirmed that he's alive. Do you know, El- uh, Elias Mata in the in the chat room brings up a, a good point, which I did write about, which is this is an echo of when. Tyrion was pulled overboard by the stone men in season five. Uh, and then you see a very similar shot of him sinking down. Um, mm. and then it fades to black for a long time, but then immediately after yeah. Tyrion wakes up on the, you think he's maybe dead for two seconds and then right. he wakes up on the beach. You know, it really does remind me more of that Arya stabbing in the bridge made no sense yeah. at the time. Yeah, still yeah. doesn't. And, um, I don't know. It's just, um, I, I don't know. It's it's it, it was a silly bit of added drama that they just didn't need. Someone else in the chat room um, said, uh, where is it? Oh, Zach Melchert says, I didn't even realize it was supposed to be a cliffhanger. Didn't even consider that he would have died there. So maybe some people are like not even thinking that Jamie's dead. But given the SEO hit I had on the is Jamie dead post I wrote last night, a lot of people thought he might be dead. <laughs> 
So, you know, and and he's not in the trailer for next. I mean, I know we don't talk about trailers for next week. He's not yeah. in it. Is Jamie dead? Uh, is Jamie Lannister dead? You are the first result on Google. Congratulations. Uh, thank you. Um, you know, um, he's not in the trailer for next week. They didn't talk about him in the behind the scenes. Mercifully, at least, like, there aren't a lot. I haven't seen a ton of interviews out there where they're, like, saying he is dead, which was the whole thing that bothered me about Jon Snow. Anyway, whatever. I don't want to dwell on it too long because I really did love this episode. I really did love this battle scene. I think it was a misstep to have that thing right at the end. But up until then, freaking great. Just great stuff. <laughs> yeah, and I agree with you. I, it, it's a frustrating it's, – it's frustrating. Um, but it's, it's a – it's like um, – you know this amazing, delicious Sunday, like you know, ice cream Sunday that we've had. That like you get all the way to the bottom, the whole thing was delicious, and at the bottom you like, I don't know, bite into like a piece of sand or something. <laughs> it's like, ooh, like wish it didn't have that piece of sand at the end, but everything else was amazing. You know? <laughs> yeah. Um, here's my question. Yes. Do we think Jamie's gonna have to lose his golden hand in order to like get out of that water? Or I don't think the golden hand is that significant. I mean, it's heavy, man. If you were yeah. sinking, would you not ditch that hand? Yeah, uh, prob- probably. First thing that would probably. go, then my Lannister armor, and then I would emerge, reborn, baptized by fire, uh, seeing the error of my ways. I don't, I don't know if that's what's gonna happen to Jamie, but um, every time I see that hand, I just think to myself, that is the show's way of solving the problem of not CGIing. Jamie's hand. It's a time. book thing. It's not the show's fault. <laughs> it's. I'm sure the show's grateful that they don't have to put a green sock on Nicola Coaster Waldo all the time. I'm sure Nicola Coaster Waldo is really bored with putting his hand inside a gold thing all the time. But you know, Jonah, I think that our level of discourse is rapidly declining <laughs> as, as we're getting into like close to two hours from this podcast. So I think we should wrap it up soon. But okay. Uh, overall. Masterful episode. It's in top three, top five for me. Is it for you? Is it up there? Or is it, is it lower I was down? Talking, I was talking to Neil Miller about this the other night, and he was like, Neil was like, maybe top 10. But he said, maybe top five, probably top 10, definitely top 15. I will agree with definitely top 15, probably top 10. But I really need to think about top five. It's All right. probably in the top 10. But it's definitely like, okay, let me let me think about battle episodes. We've got Hard Home, ba- Blackwater, uh, Bastards, Castle Black. Um, There's that one that happened at the Wall too, right? That's the Battle of Castle Black. Oh, okay, gotcha. Sorry. Um, and uh, I don't know if we want to count um, the door as a battle. Uh, not, I guess not. Nah. So, so... I would say Hard Home is my favorite. I've always ranked Blackwater a second, but I think I would say Hard Home and then this one that is not called the Loot Train Attack. Yes. Um, so as far as battles goes, probably my second favorite for sure. All right. Well, um, thanks for listening to this week's episode of A Cast of Kings. Uh, Jonah Robinson, where can people find more of your work on the internet this week? Uh, you can find me over on VanityFair.com. You can follow me on Twitter at Joe Wrote This. You can hear me talking about um, some some spoilers and some not spoilers on Star Wars Spoilers podcast. Or you can hear me talking about not Game of Thrones at all on the podcast Little Goldman. Find all my stuff at DaveChen.net. Follow me on Twitter at Dave Chensky. That's Dave Chen S-K-Y. I host a film podcast called The Slash Filmcast at SlashFilmcast.com. 
And find more episodes of this podcast at GameOfThronesPodcast.com. Email us at acastofkings at gmail.com. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at acastofkings. And to take us out today, Blade Gear singing the song, You Make Brooding Look Good. Oh, 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 damn, you just know. Kind of a wreck, got zombie. You seen some shit, and it really messed you up inside. Oh, you put on that black, uh, put your hair tied back. Uh, you make all the girls cry. They say, oh, 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 damn, you just know. Make Putin look good. Oh, 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 we love you just know. She got the dragon glass with that dragon ass. She done saved Marie, now she need a king. Well, she's his aunt, so maybe he can. We've got to believe in the prophecy. Cause the knock ain't coming and we're all gonna die. So you gotta get together and form us all out. And there ain't no use in the ravens around. Jaws are hot, motherfucker in us. Oh.